come to the book of Revelation. We are now at the last part, the last passage in the book. That we began in the beginning of the year, and now our next week will be finishing. Um, this passage is not so much another vision, but it is an epilogue. Much like the book begins with a prologue in chapter 1. It's final word. So this epilogue in chapter 22 of Revelation is too long to cover in one week, but it doesn't really divide nicely into first half and second half. And so what I've decided is to cover its two themes in these two final sermons. One this week and one next week. The two themes are conveniently summed up by Revelation 1.13, I'm sorry, 3.11, which says, I am coming soon, hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. So, one theme is about the future, that Jesus is coming soon, and what that means. We'll cover that today. The other theme is about the present, about how we must hold fast and keep this book and the things it tells us. We'll cover that next week. It's especially appropriate to talk about Jesus coming soon today, since it is Christmas Eve, a day when traditionally we reflect on the coming of Jesus, though of course we usually focus on his first coming, not on his second coming, which we'll be doing today. The fact is the New Testament begins with the first coming of Christ and it ends with the second coming of Christ. Our passage is Revelation 22, 6-21, so I'm going to read the whole thing. This is God's word. And he said to me, These things are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near that the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
the spirit and the the spirit and the bride say, "Come." And let the one who hears say, "Come." And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Christ came to earth to redeem, as we read about in Revelation chapter 5, 1 to 10, where Christ is introduced as the Lion of Judah, but then appears as the Lamb who was slain. And the only one qualified to open the scroll, the uh, seals of the scroll. And then he was praised as the one worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom. But all through the book we're told that he will come again. In one seven, behold he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. 2.16, I will come to you soon. 3.11, I am coming soon. In chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, we have this glorious vision of Christ returned, riding on a white horse. But this theme of him coming soon reaches a crescendo in the last chapter, chapter 22. Behold, I am coming soon, in verse 7. The time is near, verse 10. Behold, I am coming soon in verse 12. Surely I am coming soon in verse 20. Right now, of course, Jesus is hidden. And some think that because they can't see him, he doesn't truly exist. What a foolish assumption. Only a fool lives as though things are going to be the way that they are right now and that everything that is real is something they can see. Jesus Jesus promises us that he's coming soon. It's perhaps the main point of the book of Revelation. It's the way the book was introduced in the very first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. However, what does soon mean? We want to know when. And when it comes to the timing of his return, God holds the cards very close to his chest. Jesus said that even he didn't know the time of his coming in Mark 13.32. It seems that God wants every generation to think it might be theirs. It seems this is an important ingredient in faithful Christian living in this age. I could spend the rest of my time this morning just reading passages from the New Testament which talk about how our orientation in this life should be all directed towards that day when he returns. Some, though, 
think the Bible is not accurate because it said that Jesus was coming soon and here it is 2,000 years later and he still hasn't come. So what can we say to this accusation? Well, when people raise this objection, I like to tell them, did you know that you're in the Bible? For the New Testament actually tells us that it's going to take so long for Jesus to return that people are going to raise that very complaint that you've just raised to me. And I point them to 2 Peter 3, 3 to 9, which says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water deluged with water and perished but by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly but do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance so the two basic answers that Peter gives to this objection here one is that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day God is the one who has the proper perspective on time he made it after all He's the one who knows what soon really means when he says soon. In eternity, when we see things through his perspective, we will agree with him that it was soon. Even though from our human vantage point now, it doesn't fit our expectations of soon. The second answer he gives is that the delay should not be seen as some failure on God's part, but actually as a kindness. The fact is, he's being patient with mankind. He wants to give every opportunity to people to come to faith and escape the wrath which is to come. There are other good responses as well from other places in the Bible. One is to point to the the fact that in the Old Testament, the same thing is said hundreds of years earlier, before Christ. Zephaniah 1.14 The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. Same thing, similar thing in Ezekiel 12.23 In fact, the first coming of Christ provides us with an excellent analogy of waiting now for his second coming. The first promise of his coming, of course, came at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. But many additional promises were added over the centuries. And the people of God were asked to wait a very long time, over 2,000 years, for the promise of the Messiah coming to be fulfilled. Many gave up along the way. Those who 
kept waiting were ridiculed and laughed at. But lo and behold, one day he showed up. He actually came just like he said. And those who kept waiting and expecting and longing ended up being the heroes of the story. And we scoff at those who scoffed at them. We shouldn't be surprised to have to wait for what seems like a long time for his second coming. But just because it's a long time doesn't mean he's not coming. But it is human nature to get tired of waiting. Many of us have experienced what it's like trying to get a child to wait for something. To wait to open presents, which is an especially relevant one at this time of year. To uh, wait to arrive at a destination that you're driving to. To wait to get a treat that they've been promised. And that spirit of impatience is in us all. So when people are forced to wait a long time, they start to give up. It's too hard to keep expecting, to keep anticipating, to keep looking for something to happen when it keeps not happening. And when Christmas and when Christians stop waiting for Christ's return, what do they begin to focus on? We focus on now. We focus on our lives here in the present. We become totally preoccupied with our present circumstances. Jesus keeps urging us not to fret about our circumstances, but to wait for tomorrow, to set our minds on the things above. To focus on what's coming. To focus on who's coming. But it's hard because he keeps not coming. You see, there's a weeding out process that's taking place, I believe. We're being tested. Do we really believe our Father? Do we really believe His promises? Then we'll keep renewing our strength to wait. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now they may get laughed at, they may be ridiculed, they may even be punished, but they won't stop waiting. They won't give up on the Lord. They won't stop trusting in His promises and in His goodness and power. However, those who don't truly seek Him, but seek only His gifts to them, they will not last. They will not finish the race. They will not endure to the end. Whatever else is said about Jesus coming back soon, it certainly suggests that we have a duty to think of our lives as short. And that it is a sin to think of life as long. There's a stark contrast, you see, between the way we act when we think we have plenty of time versus the way we act when we think our time is short. 
I waste so much time because I keep forgetting that the time is short. If I have something going on at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and it's 8 o'clock in the morning, and I feel like I have a lot of time, I waste so much more time than at noon, when all of a sudden I realize I only have an hour left, and then I'm working on a completely different mindset. When you lose someone you love, you're suddenly gripped by the reality of how your time with that person was short. Even if beforehand, in ordinary everyday life, it felt like you had plenty of time. And people on their deathbed rarely think of life as too long. Oh Lord, when I look out upon the world before me, may I learn to live in constant awareness of the shortness of my time here. This is exactly what Moses wrote in Psalm 90 where he said, Teach us to number my, our days. Teach us to remember that they're so short. Now the return of Christ isn't necessarily good news. It's bad news for those who reject him. He said, I am coming soon, but he followed that by saying, by saying, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. This is in keeping with the vision that I mentioned a moment ago in Revelation 19 about Jesus riding on a white horse who judges and makes war. And it says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. And it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Only those who wash their robes will be given access to the tree of life and to the new Jerusalem. There are those who will be excluded. As verse 15 refers to them, the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Some will be excluded on that glorious day, cast out into the outer darkness, eternally continuing the punishment which began when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden and yet intensified to a great degree. Some people are troubled by what seems to be a shift in the demeanor of Jesus from grace and compassion and patience and kindness to fierce wrath and judgment from the, from the lamb to the lion. This is seen nowhere more clearly than in the shift from this age to the age to come. You hear it said, this is not the Jesus I know. Well, that's a problem. Because both Jesuses are in the Bible. And that means that both Jesuses are the same Jesus. And it shouldn't surprise us to find out that God in the flesh isn't always easy to figure out or predict. 
the fact is this is the age in which God shows his grace and mercy and invites all people to repent and come to him but we're told over and over again in the starkest of terms that there will be no more mercy and no more invitation to those who have rejected him on that last day when he returns. The door will be shut. People will be left outside in the dark as occurs in some of the parables like the ten virgins where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the good news is the door is not shut yet. The invitation has not yet expired. It's not yet too late. You don't need to be left outside. In light of what the future holds, Jesus calls out to mankind in verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. You don't need a perfect record. You don't even need a good record. All you need is to come to Jesus. All you need is to be thirsty for him. All you need is to desire the water of life and it will be given to you free of charge. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity, love, and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to own your need of him. It's one of the hymns that we like to sing. As we wait for Jesus to come, all of us need to come to Jesus. The parable of the sower in the section where the seed is sown is thrown among the thorns teaches us that it's very possible for someone to have spiritual life or at least to appear to have spiritual life and yet it's squeezed out by the presence of pressures and the temptations and the appeals of this life and its things. We can end up coming to many other people, to many other places, to many other activities, instead of coming to Jesus. We are able to be so saturated with the water of this world that we lose our thirst for the water of life. Jesus said that it's very hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom. I've told you before that in my opinion this is what what makes it so difficult for the American Christian community. This is our special challenge, our peculiar test. But one thing I don't say very often in saying this because it's so common, because it's something that, that Americans, Christians struggle with so much, one thing I don't say enough is when a Christian who is comfortable in the terms of the things of this world 
does not put his hope in those things, but stands ready to let them go, and is not haughty, but generous to others, because he wants God first, even if he has to let go of everything else, that is very precious to God. Come, Lord Jesus. May this be the cry of our hearts and the cry of our lives. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do find in our own minds and hearts how easy it is to stop longing and stop expecting and stop looking for the return of Christ And Lord, it it heartens us, it cheers us when we remember those who witnessed the birth of Christ and how their long expectations were finally met. How Simeon took that baby in his arms as an old man who had longed for his coming his whole life and had been told that he would not die until the Savior was born. To see his joy and his fulfillment in finally being able to witness the coming of Jesus. Oh Lord, it encourages our spirits as we continue to wait for his reappearance on the clouds on that day. And dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these instructions and these reminders. We thank you for your call to us to not give all of our attention to the things of this world, but to live in this world with the return of Christ in mind, with the new heavens and the new earth in mind with the new Jerusalem in mind where there be no more night and so Lord not to be discouraged in the face of what's happening in this world and not walk around as those who are gloomy and in despair like so many others because oh Lord we know about this life We know about this world and we know about its future. Thank you that you have given us this hope. Help us to be patient. And please, O Lord, as we wait, renew our strength and allow us to keep running even when our legs are weary and keep walking and even soar on eagles' wings. And now, O Lord, we thank you for the privilege of moving to the table of our Lord Jesus, where he called us to go, to eat of his body and blood, and to remember what he has done for us, and how he has accomplished our salvation for us, and how he awaits us in heaven where we will eat with him of a great wedding feast on that day. 
So, O Lord, strengthen us even now. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.